you use them. Welcome to the BizDoc Podcast. I'm Tom Ellsworth with the BizDoc. I'm here with Kylo and the charming Kelly, the Swiss Army Knife, Kellyanne. Hi. And she's going to run charts, pull things up while we talk about stuff. And this is what we've got. We have three segments today. Uh, the first segment, Kai and I are going to run through some stats and what they mean for you. And what do we got? We got... We got the decline of threads. Uh-oh. We got uh, consumer cash spending. Uh-oh. And who is overpaid, which is from a survey where they were looking at the most paid uh, people across different industries. Wow, that's an even bigger uh-oh. I hope that's not me. Yeah. And then segment number two, we're going to go to, we have a CEO interview that we're going to be in segment number two today, and that will be Guy Gal, the founder and CEO of Side, which is a platform, kind of the Shopify of real estate, enabling super successful real Realtors to go and build their own business on their previous success and to take more profit out of that for themselves. It's incredible. I think you're going to like what he has to say because he's got stuff that apply to entrepreneurs everywhere. And then lastly, a very interesting case study on uh, a little known club, Inter Miami, that is suddenly on the global stage with uh, signing the superstar Messi. So that should be a very interesting one. I was just about to say who plays for them, but boy, we know who plays for them now. Yeah, we have a BizDoc case study coming up. The board is back, and the case study is back, so we're going to put that up at the end. But first, we're going to run into now some stats. The decline of threads you just talked about, what do we have? Yep, absolutely. So the decline of threads has been uh, very interesting. The threads came out of nowhere, copying more or less uh, the main features that Twitter had, and a lot of people were saying, oh, this is the Twitter killer. But after having signed, I think it was almost 100 million people they signed, now um, they, the user data is reporting that uh, usage has dropped 43% since July 7th. Um, so that's quite interesting. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? Wow, this is what I think. Look, controls, you know what, control C, control V is not a way. By the way, that's for you Windows people. It's yep. different, if the, different for, the, command. For, the, for the Mac, it's command. Yep. But you know what? That is a bad way to make a make a product. That is a bad way. And you know, we know what's going on here. It's like this will be the Twitter killer. This will be this. I signed up. I found out that I moved all my Instagram contacts. I found out I couldn't stop it. That once it was going, that I couldn't turn it off. And then I found out that there's a bunch of features missing. I felt like I had an early alpha product, like mm-hmm. a, uh, what they would say. You know, my I love the books that I recommend, Zero to One and The Lean Startup. They're both a little different on, on concepts, but there's one of them that talks a lot about the MVP, the minimum viable product. And I just didn't feel like all the features were there. What did you think when you signed? No, absolutely. I mean, I never even signed up for threads, but from the... From You're look- the guy then. There's one missing there's, from my Instagram. Yeah, list. that's me. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm sorry, Tom. No, but I think uh, <laughs> the biggest thing for me with threads was that it came out of nowhere. They're trying to copy uh, Twitter, and it's pretty obvious. There's no other additional things where it's like, wow, this is cool. It's more just, hey, we're just co- copy-pasting this. And what happens, in my opinion, is that depending on different platforms, you have different user behaviors and consumption. And then the challenge with that is when you just move people who are on Instagram, although it's a different app, you move them over, it doesn't necessarily mean that the content is going to correlate or that the followers are going to correlate. Because depending on what platform you're on, you might be consuming different content. So it's not as simple as just shifting the audience over because 
what the audience that cares to look at your beautiful lifestyle with pictures and stuff like that, they might not really care about uh, something like your thoughts or your words and stuff like that. And just because you're skilled on one platform and you can communicate or articulate yourself via pictures, via videos or something like that, doesn't mean it's going to formulate over words. No, that, totally. And so the, the, the premise that what Meta made was like, okay, this is what we're going to have. We are going to basically um, assume that your audience on Instagram, where you, maybe you're selling things, your traits, and your lifestyle, is going to match the narrative um, audience that you have on Twitter, which is more of a news feed with opinion. At least that's mm -hmm. what it is for me. Yep. Um, I mean, I don't have pictures of the BizDoc Babe or, you know, Bailey the Golf Girl or Brooke the Soccer Fiend. I don't have those. Actually, she's now the swimming fish. She's reminding me she's in two sports and swimming is number one. So yep. I got to get that right. Swimming. Brooker, I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, I don't put any of them up on um, uh, Twitter, and I'm very selective about what I put on Instagram because they're my kids and they're minors. Uh, but it's, it's very different. And yep. so, so this was a study by SimilarWeb. So this is not our own research. We went out and dug into this. But what SimilarWeb is saying is that the traffic fell 43% from July 7th to now, and now is July 20th, July 21st tomorrow. So that's two weeks to really look at everything, not overnight stats, quick stats. That's real good sample run by a reputable company that says they're also, that's for Android, and they're also running it and currently processing now for iOS, but they're seeing similar numbers, but they're gonna get their numbers straight before they announce it. But this is enough to say, it showed up quick. Is it disappearing quick? Uh, we'll wait and find out because we know it can't disappear completely because they don't let you delete it. You yeah. know? No. It's Talk it. But talking about that, something else that's been uh, crunched now over the last couple years here, uh, consumer cash. This is going to be interesting. You want to pull up the chart here? Oh, I love this. I love this chart you found on this. Yeah, this absolutely. So, so here we have the crazy. chart coming up here, uh, and it basically just goes to show that the consumer spending, it's the, uh, it's the consumer built up spend a cash buffer. Isn't that it? We're looking for consumer build up a cash buffer in the pandemic, but balances have dwindled. That's what we're looking for. Yep. So let's see. I mean, we'll, we can just discuss it as it's coming up here. I think, uh, does this surprise you at all? No, it doesn't. Um, it absolutely doesn't at all. Um, what, what's happened is there was just an announcement that came out. Uh, and this was a new statistic that came out about... Um, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, talk about total credit card debt. Mm -hmm. The total credit card debt, um, which is on credit cards, it doesn't add up your house, doesn't add up your car, you know, and people could say those are reasonable or unreasonable large debts, but the credit card debt is very much usually related to lifestyle. Yep. And that it went, it was as low as 650, 690 uh, at one point during the pandemic when all the checks came out from the government, yep. the release checks. However, it then has popped up to a trillion dollars. Yeah. And so we heard that. Then we heard, um, I think it was three weeks ago, four weeks ago on the PBD podcast we covered, that people said in the last two years that at least one time they had to go to savings yeah. or actually use a credit card to make the mortgage payment. Now, we know you can't make a mortgage payment on the credit card and you can't take one of those convenience yeah. checks that are attached to your monthly bill if yep. you still get a paper bill and use that. But what they do is you can get a cash advance to yourself if you have enough credit limit and you can put that cash in your checking account, then pay your mortgage. And so the understanding was over two years, 
one out of two years, which meant that the consumer was suffering the long-term effects of inflation. Remember, inflation can go down, but the price of everything can still be high, not moderating. It's called moderation. Gas at the pump will spike. Then you hear about the price of oil goes down, barrel of oil, and suddenly the gasoline moderates at the pump. That doesn't always happen with the price of eggs or other things you buy. No, exactly. And if, if, if you're looking at the chart here, you can see that on uh, 2020, early, obviously it spikes out of nowhere. You're going from almost, I mean, low percentages all the way up to 60%. And then the other part is it, it kind of drops down quickly and then it shoots up again, which I think was round two of uh, the stimulus. And then it skyrockets round three. So I think that a correlation here is pretty interesting to see as, as soon as there's more spending, obviously you don't have as, you have more of a cash buffer, but then when people go out and buy Gucci bags or whatever they want with that, you're not really using it for what it's worth. And then the other thing is now that we're returning more back to normal where you're paying rent, oh, even uh, eviction, eviction moratoriums and stuff like that, yep. where people weren't even getting by without paying rent and stuff like that. So I think that in the grand scheme of things, this doesn't really surprise me at all because as we're returning to the normal, the free money, the endless printing is, is coming to an end, and now we're going to have to suffer the consequences of it. Yep, and I, and I wish we had this chart to put up. I don't know what happened there, but what it shows is regardless of income strata in America, the inflation effect and the disposable savings effect right now was the same, you know, that it's coming down and the consumer balances have buffered. Yep. Well, the third thing, if you're a consumer and you're trying to save more money, uh, the third stat that we have here is, are you overpaid or not? Well, you don't want, you're always going to answer, no, I'm not. But if you ask a bunch of uh, workers in America, yep. who is overpaid, they all have an opinion, don't they? Yeah, so they did a sample of 3,000 people asking various different positions of, are they overpaid in terms of very or somewhat overpaid to slightly overpaid? and then not sure, and then vice versa in terms of like they're underpaid or they're very underpaid. Uh, so if we pull up the chart here on this one, we can see the, the various positions anywhere from politicians, there we go. professional athletes, CEOs, lawyers, investment bankers, to on the bottom here we see retail sales workers, restaurant workers, nurses, farmers, and factory workers. I'll let you go first on this, Tom. What are your it, thoughts? What's very interesting, this is a tale of two cities. If you look at the top here, what we've got, and I'll talk over this, is uh, politicians and professional athletes and CEOs. Everyone seems to think 76, basically three quarters of America says, all you guys are overpaid. Now, lawyers and investment bankers, only two thirds of America seems to think they're overpaid. But however, something I agree with, you go down to the bottom, is they believe that retail sales, restaurant workers, the you just had, nurses, farmers, and factory workers were very or somewhat underpaid. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? No, absolutely. And I think that the other part with these are, there's, there's two different levels I see it in terms of, because obviously you have the argument for somebody's overpaid if they either have a skill set that's providing a lot of value or there's very few of them in a simple supply and demand. So I think the interesting part is, politicians being number one and pretty significantly in terms of that. Um, Nancy Pelosi on a $200,000 salary has accumulated almost $150 million in wealth. I think the actual number is 140. Exactly. Huh. And, and the other part too, I think with this is possibly too also just a lot of people being fed up with. Would that be overpaid or overbribed? Uh, who knows, who knows. <laughs> but I think uh, they're, they're probably, it's also a sign of just dissatisfaction in terms of how mm -hmm. they've done the job of if you feel like 
because to be it's fair if you feel like somebody's putting in a lot of work and you're you're receiving a lot of reward from it it's worth it right because this is this goes back to perception if the perceived value is high you're willing to pay that value right exactly uh, Apple the, the iPhones are way more expensive than other phones and they cost very little to, or just to great make. service at a restaurant you're there for your kid's birthday and somebody is just giving you that extra effort that's high value and you, you sit there and say I I know that the, this is not a giant salary thing and they rely on tips and so you try to take care of them no where you can but you can't always do that the great nurse that helps you in emergency room and your kid sprains her ankle you don't give them a tip you just hope that they're 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 well paid because what they're doing is such high value they do such a good job you walk out of there thinking man i'm so disappointed that you know nurses aren't paid more no exactly and i think the, the other interesting um correlation here with all the five that are significantly underpaid they're very uh, manual intensive labor so that's uh, that's another interesting stat here but in terms of CEOs Tom what do we have coming up um, well first of all this is basically the stats pack for the week and uh, the client of threads consumer cash crunch and then who's unpaid paid and now we've got a CEO interview coming up in the next segment just now with guy gal of side and I'm really looking forward to this we'll be right back Okay, BizDoc, I'm back. Second segment today. I'm really excited about this because I did a case study on this company about two years ago when they, when they landed on the scene making a disruptive difference in real estate in a very positive way. And I did the case study at the time they had became unicorn status. So we are really glad to have with us today Guy Gal, founder and CEO of Side. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to be here. So I did the case study, and we can read the website, but in your own words, what is SIDE? I've called you a platform. I've called you a difference maker. In your own words, who are you? Well, I thought you did such a great job of profiling SIDE and were one of the very few people that was right on the nose. But, yeah, SIDE is a real estate brokerage as a service. So it's invisible, white-label real estate brokerage end-to-end -end, but it's got no brand that is consumer facing of its own uh it is entirely a platform that's behind the scenes so on top of the side platform today you'll have hundreds and hundreds of boutique real estate agencies that are actually owned by the agents who provide the service to that community and here behind me on my virtual background you can see many hundreds of them that's fantastic. What I thought was really interesting about what you did is there are so many things, you know, that a realtor does. But the number one thing is make relationships with buyers and sellers. And you can't automate that. Someone has to know their neighborhood, know their their yes. their part of the town, high end, low end, through soccer teams, moms and dads getting ready to buy houses or through high end experiences at a country club. You got to know your people. But beyond that, there's so many things that can be automated. That, it's, that can make that, that energy putting into the relationships so much, so much better. And I thought that what you had done was incredible and, and really, really innovative. What was your inspiration to say, you know what, real estate needs a platform so all these things can be done for the realtors so they can work on relationships and buy and sell and spend the maximum amount of their time making transactions? Well, first I'll say this, which is not related directly to your question, but I'm going to get right back to it, uh, is that early on, our key insight was that everyone that was looking to build and innovate within real estate 
was trying to automate away the agent. And our realization was that you can't really automate away someone who deals in nuance and who services folks in that way. Um, but what was something that seemed like an opportunity for automation was the brokerage operation and infrastructure itself, because brokerage is in effect a clearinghouse that is manually managed on an office per office basis. And side is the ACH equivalent to that at our core. Uh, that's what we do from a technology standpoint. So you're absolutely right as usual uh, about that. But the inspiration for side wasn't born out of the, um, uh, you know, an interest for us to automate something that was being done manually. Uh, rather, it was born out of the fact that we recognized um, that you had this subset of agents that were already running their own businesses, that were incredibly committed full-time fiduciaries, created a lot more value for their clients than what they actually were taking from them. But they were in the minority in the industry, only representing roughly 30% of transactions or so, while 70 plus percent of the rest of those deals were being handled by part-time casual uh, agents that weren't um, very well experienced. And those agents, the ones I'm describing, those high volume committed ones, were already forming into teams and were already, in effect, running and operating their own business. Our insight, however, was, Tom, that they didn't own that business. They were make, you know, investing the time, the money, the energy, the effort, taking all the risk, not getting any of the equity upside in the way that if you're a merchant on eBay or on Amazon, you can use that platform to distribute your product and make money, but you're not really building any equity because the distribution and the brand and destination and all the infrastructure and so forth in the consumer relationship, the customer relationship is actually owned by those platforms and not by you. So we said, let's take more of a Shopify approach to real estate and take all these folks who are running a company and put them in a position where they can actually own that company without having to operate a brokerage from scratch. I think that's fantastic. And for people that may not be familiar with real estate, if you're listening right now to what we're talking about, think of it this way, is if you've ever seen on Amazon, someone wrote a book, like self-publishing platform, they're starting at zero. No one has bought the book yet. They may be an expert on something, but now they're putting it in a book and there's been no copy sold. Nothing has happened yet. And so Amazon self-publishing allows them to get off and running. What Guy is talking about, think about an author that's built an entire business and he has, they have customers, they have everything going. And yet now that it's built, everybody around them has made money on them fair and square. But from that moment forward, why shouldn't the author get a bigger cut? They've, the publishers have made money when they were a young author and didn't have it. In the same way, I think he's talking about you've got real estate agents that cut their teeth, get up and going, building relationships. Ten years into it, now they've got a business running with their clientele. The house has made money fair and square up to that point. But from that point forward, why shouldn't they have their own office, their own business and get the fruits of that and also be the equity participant in that. And that's what I thought was so exciting about what you did. It's exactly right. You know, these 
a great real estate agent is an entrepreneur first. Um, they wake up every single morning and connect invisible dots that no one is telling them how to approach. There's no instructions to it at all whatsoever. They put up the time, they put up the money, they take on salaries, they employ people, they manage, they help other agents become better at what they do, they mentor. But in the traditional status quo relationship between agent and brokerage, where an agent legally has to be affiliated in order to sell, help uh, buyers and sellers, um, they don't get any of the equity upside. So our message to those agents when we started side was, hey, it's now you can take your own advice for the first time. You can, instead of renting, you can buy. And side will come in and help you make the down payment. There you go. So you don't have to figure out how to actually build a brokerage. That's fantastic. You know, on Patrick Ben David's podcast, I'll cover a lot of market stats and I get people down to earth, you know, feedback. And one of the things we've been covering is what's been going on in the in the real estate market today. So the real estate market may be way down in terms of another trend, number of transactions, but it's not zero. It hasn't gone to zero. It's that gone down. Close. Interest rates, interest rates may be up, you know, at right now, I think seven and a half percent, maybe a little bit down. I mean, a week ago, like seven, seven, eights, 30 year fixed on a six, $700,000 mortgage. I think that came down about a half a point this week. There's a little bit of relief there. But what's interesting is that doesn't mean nothing's happening in the industry. Sure, if you're a mortgage broker, maybe the refi market is dead right now because how do you refi from a 4% that you got two years ago into a 7%? You know, that's, that's not good for anybody but the bank. No one's going to do that. Um, so the refi market's out, but there's still transactions happening. How are things going for side? Because a lot of what you work with potentially is, is realtors working with cash buyers and working with high end. What, what do you see the market in America? Because all this bad news is out there. There's got to be entrepreneurs that are focusing, refusing to give up, that are still making it even in this market. The real estate market in the U.S. is incredibly robust and durable and healthy. This correction um, is very different than the housing crisis in that the mortgages are sound and I think it's something in the in the ballpark of 40% of people who own homes in the US today don't even have a mortgage on them right and the rest of those that do have refied into very low rates that they are locked into and that's what's creating a supply constraint in the real estate market and the housing market, the problems are not born out of a lack of demand. The higher interest rates have done very little to dampen buyer demand for homes. What they've done more so is constrain the ability of sellers or the incentive for sellers to actually bring their homes to market in the first place. Got it. So uh, people aren't... People aren't stepping up in a community because if they want to step up to something and they've done well in life and maybe they run a business or something, they've recovered from COVID and all that, um, stepping up is harder because you do have to give up that lower interest rate and the step up may be not just a little step up, a lot because of the payment. Um, exactly. And so, we, so have, you know, we have a supply problem, not a demand problem in the U.S., you're saying. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, when homes come to market... For the most part, with some exception, but for the most part, there's still multiple offer scenarios. 
Uh, they're still on market, you know, much less than three months on average. Uh, it's trading, it's moving and it's liquid. The constraint is on the supply side, not on the buy side. Instead of doing the traditional upgrading up by buying into a new home, people now are just refinancing out or taking a HELOC or have money in the bank already and and are renovating into the home they already own. There you go. So who were you before you founded Side? What were you doing? What was your experience? There's a lot of people that watch our programming here at Valuetainment, and they have an idea, and they want to step out as an entrepreneur. We always give them the same advice. Make sure you've saved some money to get out there and make sure you know the market, you know the buyer, and you are smart about whatever it is you're going to do, whether it's software, whether you're making t-shirts in Berlin, doesn't matter. Make sure that you're (laughs) ready to get through the winter with some savings. And they all come from different places, but what they all love, they all love talking to each other and learning what everybody's background, what was the fingerprint of the entrepreneur before they started the successful company that kind of defines them. What were you doing and who were you? You know, I don't come from real estate. And if I worked, if I uh, was in real, if I had been in real estate, the odds of uh, us having thought of side and having had that insight would have been much lower because more often than not, when it comes to legacy industries like real estate or, you know, hotels or taxis, it takes an outside perspective and a beginner's mindset to identify the opportunity that everyone else within the industry is missing because they are so institutionalized and are so invested in the status quo that it's really hard to see beyond that. The way I describe it is like a fish doesn't know that land exists. Right. Exactly. Uh, so what were you yeah, doing? So what were you water. doing when you looked out at real estate? And you said, I think there may be an opportunity over there, but you weren't tucked in real estate and kind of stuck, I was not. I was stuck not. in your eyes. I, 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 for some, for whatever reason, came out of uh, the womb, a uh, helper, compulsive helper and a problem solver. Uh, I see a problem. I want to fix a problem. Just am drawn to things that way for whatever reason. Uh, I like to you know, hold doors open for strangers. Uh, we can psychoanalyze it all we'd like, but it just is what it is. Um, and I started my first company in college by accident. And many years later, found myself in, uh, and, and it was in reaction to a problem I was having. You know, I had an itch. I went ahead and scratched. And next thing you know, I was scratching for others. And many, many years later, when I was in my early 30s, which is about uh, you know, eight or nine years ago now, I found myself in this incredibly privileged position where for the first time in my life, I was I had more I had enough money in my bank account that I didn't have to work to make ends meet every single month. <clears throat> and that uh, allowed me to buy myself some time to be really deliberate about what I wanted to do with the next 20 years of my life. My 20s were all about exploration and I let the wind take me where it would. Uh, without trying to control the direction. And in my 30s, it was all about being a lot more deliberate. And so I actually went through a two-year process in my early 30s searching for a really compelling problem to solve that would enrich and support and be of service to people I actually deeply cared about. 
And I did not think that would be real estate. And it wasn't until 10 months into that nearly two-year period where real estate presented as an opportunity. But I was just following the problems. I took away all the solution bias. I wasn't going out there looking for a problem to solve with a particular solution in mind. That's fantastic. Um, do you today or at the time it was founded, did you have like a key advisor or, a, or maybe a mentor? Uh, I had a mentor all the way up into my 40s, somebody I could trust and go talk to. I never thought of mentorship as something, oh, I need it because I'm green, I'm right out of college. But I, I always had somebody there. Did you have somebody in your life that what, was a key advisor or a mentor you could go to to bounce things off of? And where did you find that person? You know, uh, I'll say a few things on that. I think fundamentally for entrepreneurs watching this, the most, one, of the, one of the most important things you need to learn how to do as an entrepreneur, as a founder, is to manage your own psychology, to be your own mentor, and to become someone that understands how to be introspective and intellectually honest and sober about what's real and what isn't. And that allows you to be more objective and make much better decisions. Uh, and that has been what sustained me, that ability, much more than anything else that's external. It's just that internal dialogue and that internal capacity. Uh, but there's no question that in my life, there have been a lot of influential people. Um, the closest I would say that comes to a mentor is a gentleman named Dana, who is with uh, one of the world's best venture funds. Um, it's called Matrix. Uh, it's been around since the 80s, long before the movies. Uh, <clears throat> very successful uh, early stage fund. And I met him unceremoniously um, when I was in Los Angeles working on my previous company. And we established a connection relationship that was just there for some reason. And for many years, we stayed in touch. And when I decided in my early 30s, to go off and explore and figure out what to work on next. He was the most supportive person um, in my life, uh, made himself really available to bounce um, ideas back and forth and eventually actually financially supported the mission of Side and made it possible for us to come to market. Fantastic. You know, you know what's interesting? Manager in psychology is such an important point because I think there's a lesson in there, Guy, that you're talking about is you might be able to have too many advisors or you might be trusting people that maybe are different risk profile people. Yes. Maybe they're more corporate. And so they're going to be, you know, hey, you've made this money. It's sitting in the bank. Why don't you just go work for somebody else? Why take that risk? And that's the wrong psychology. If you really totally. feel you have found something, you can follow it. You believe that there's an itch to scratch there. You know, I would just I would add you know two two quick things to that. Uh, for, you know, one don't I, I don't believe that you should go out and seek mentorship uh, or seek mentors. And oftentimes you'll find your best mentors in your peers, people that are also doing what you were doing, working in the same stage, or maybe a little bit ahead of yourself. Um, but mentors will present themselves as an output of your efforts, your motivation, your commitment, and dedication. If you put your shoulder to work on solving the problem that the people you want to solve problems for need solved, everything else tends to fall in line and follow. You don't have to engineer it or manufacture it. I do think there's a lot of value, Tom, 
and preventing your thinking from becoming overly influenced by inviting too many outside opinions from every other, you know, every person you can possibly imagine or muster. Uh, there's a great deal of value in allowing yourself to have inspired thinking, thinking born out of your own reason, right? Yep. Uh, I think we're going to pull that as a short clip and uh, people are going <laughs> to see that over and over. Uh, I, I happen to 100% agree with you. One of the things that I found uh, with my companies was uh, the importance of transparency in the face of mistakes. We didn't make a lot of mistakes, but sometimes a mistake would be made or you misjudge a market, you know, and you, but you had to guess and your guess was wrong. Had there been any like mistakes or things with side, not something cataclysmic that almost killed the company, but just key mistakes where you have to sit back and go, you know what, that didn't work. We can't do that anymore. If there was something like that, you don't have to go into it. But how transparent were you about your role in it with your team? All very good questions. I was thinking about this question a bit proactively because you mentioned it to me um, ahead of time because you knew it would be a bit of a hairy one. But I, I couldn't actually there's, I could say with a fair deal of confidence and conviction that side hasn't experienced or got, made like any one big mistake that's i don't know if that's a real thing where companies make a single big mistake uh i think what the, the only single big mistake you can really make is preventing your company and yourself from having an opportunity to make the day-to-day week-to-week small mistakes that inevitably you will make in the course of bringing something new to market commercializing selling executing uh so the only real big mistake you can make out there is if you've got an idea and you maybe are, you know, go out and try to build it to perfection and you take a year before you put it in front of a customer. And then once you do, they immediately react to it and say, oh, I wish it had this thing. And you could have known that 11 months beforehand if you exposed it um, more upfront and allowed yourself to have more cycles to learn from the mistakes uh, that you're making and then apply them. So that's the only big mistake you can make. And I'm very fortunate to say that that wasn't the case at side. Uh, and it's because I've had enough experiences in the past where I recognize that there's great value in making mistakes and making it normalizing it such that people can make mistakes and not suffer, you know, consequence uh, or something overly punitive is an incredibly important force to have within a dynamic organization and workforce. So I often tell the team, you know, you're more likely to die from indigestion than starvation. We're more likely to die from a thousand little cuts than one big giant one. Um, And so um, one of my go-to tenants is that success is almost always in the recovery. Uh, It's in actually making progress, uh, anticipating that there'll be some misstep knowing that you can't anticipate each and every one of those, but being prepared to react when they happen. That's outstanding. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to be here. This has been really, really um, rich. I'll give you the last bit. Are there there one or two pieces of advice? And I know you said don't seek mentors, but is there one or two pieces of advice to entrepreneurs how about if you know one of them from the early stage, but one of them like more mid-stage? You got off the ground, you have your second or third venture capital, you proved your model, you're making some revenue, so you have validation. 
Do you have some advice for either that early stage entrepreneur or the mid-stage entrepreneur? Because you've been very successful along this and you've done what most people dream about doing is you've got the billion dollar valuation and a proven business model and momentum. It's up to the market and everything else to be ready to see how high you can go. Exactly right. Uh, my, my advice for early stage, if I had to impart one thing, if you're just in the beginning of solving problems uh, and um, you know, building software or service or whatever it is you're doing, is pay very close attention to the quote-unquote frequency case, the frequency case. That's what you ultimately want to solve for. So, for example, if um, there's a, you know, going to Africa on a safari is very low frequency, right? That's not a behavior that happens very often for people. Getting on an airplane from one city to the other for work is a much more frequent experience. So if you're building something in travel, your um, best bet is to identify the problems around the frequency case where there's lots of activity all the time, quite often, because that's where you can actually get people to use your product or your service in a more consistent and ongoing way that creates retention long-term, which is where value really comes from. It doesn't come from the first sale. It comes from your ability to continue working with that person for many, many years to come. Right? What a great uh, point, the frequency case. Huge. So I think in the early stage, it's a big old like secret sauce kind of thing is find the frequency case. You know, in sides business, the frequency case in real estate is not a person buying a house. That only happens once every 10 years. Right? A lot of startups have been built around a buyer buying a house and making that easier. They've never done well because they have to re-originate. Uh, they have to um, originate a brand new client every single day to do brand new business. There is no repeatability, no consistency, um, et cetera. So that's what I would say. In, but, but size use cases smooth out the transaction process for agents. Agents are in transaction every single day. They write offers every single day. They put together listing agreements every single day. They handle addendums every single day. So making that really beautiful and smooth and magical uh, creates stickiness and creates value. Uh, the at, at a later stage, I would the, at a mid to later stage, I would tell you the number one piece of advice I would give people is founders and operators at that stage is resist the urge to hire into perceived opportunity. So resist the urge to hire into perceived opportunity. That's that indigestion versus starvation thing I was talking about. As companies become more successful, you have more capital, uh, you start seeing opportunity everywhere because it is everywhere. There's opportunity everywhere. But to realize opportunity requires great focus, great investment, great energy. It's not as simple as turning a few people's attention to it. It's an incredible organizational lift. Uh, and so I think in mid-stage, the magical thing that you can do is be really disciplined about maintaining focus around your core product, going deeper, not broader, and making it that much more robust and effective. Love it. Really appreciate that. 
Well, I just want to congratulate you and thank you again. I, I really, I kind of, it, maybe love isn't the right word, but I really kind of fell in love with the company when I did the research to, to do the profile of case study because I looked at it and I'm like, wait a minute, this is not like these uh, transaction companies. I call them real estate transaction companies. They're like saying, hey, put your house on the market. It won't cost you 6%. That's the only benefit. The only exactly. benefit you were going to save, you were going to save the seller you know, a percent. That was the only person in the ecosystem that gets benefit. The buyer didn't have someone to talk to. The buyer had to self-select and, and go through. And if they're moving to a new, a new market and the neighborhoods are listed, what the hell do they know about the new neighborhoods unless they've actually gone to the city and driven around? And why would you drive around the entire city until you found the, the, the you know, you say, well, I think I want to live here. I think the school's here. That's what a sell, that's what a buyer's real estate agent can cut all that time out of. And all these transaction companies were doing was making it easier for a seller to save money on the transaction. I looked at yeah. it and I said, where's the rest of the benefit here? Where's the rest of it? You know, where's the real estate agent that said, you know, I was here 15 years ago when that uh, housing division was built. It's one of the best builders in the area. Right. And it's like, would you know? how would you know that? Exactly. It really uh, takes away all the nuance. And look, that's why. 20 years into the internet, 90 plus percent of transactions are still agent assisted because consumers genuinely value that. Uh, they want a fiduciary that knows what they're doing, that can cover their behind, right? Keep them safe, uh, represent their interests. And that's why it persists. Um, but yeah, I think I'll say, I know what you just said there, Tom. I know when you were wrapping up, but I think very little innovation comes from you know cutting costs or making things cheaper. And very few companies have ever been successful doing that or pursuing that as a strategy. Real innovation is born out of creating more value than there was before. It's a blue ocean strategy. You know, it's like creating value in, and rather than discounting everything to become a bloody red ocean where all the sharks just attack to each other. Well, thank you exactly. so much. I really appreciate you doing this. We're going to cut this into short clips. I hope they're useful to you, too, to share with other people, because your story is a great one. And I just I so appreciate it. And I've, uh, you know, your friendship and knowing you as well as um, giving your perspective to entrepreneurs everywhere. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. I've been a big fan of yours for some time. And like I said, when I first saw that video that you did, describing what side was. You were the very first person I ever saw that got it. So thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. All right, I'm back and I found my board. So we're going to do a quick case study today in the spirit and the style of the old BizDoc case studies. What I was just talking about is, hey, when you hire people, you may incentivize them. You may give them stock. Well, I've got a case study to talk about that in the through the lens of history of the birth of Inter-Miami. The soccer team in Miami that just signed Messi and the signing of Messi himself. Let's go back in history to see where it all starts. It actually starts 16 years ago in 2007. Wait a minute. Messi was born in 1987. He'd be barely 20 years old. How does Messi coming to enter Miami go back 16, 17 years? I'll tell you how. David Beckham was coming to the LA Galaxy, one of the two Los Angeles uh, soccer teams in MLS. At the time, it was one. He gets a five-year, $250 million contract, 
and has a clause in it, an option to pay $25 million in the future to get an expansion team. Why did they do that? They were trying to bring the wattage, the superpower, the superstar that was David Beckham, bend it like Beckham, to bring him to the United States to raise the characterization of MLS being a tier one league because it was seen as, well, you know, when you get in semi-retirement, maybe some of the Europeans can just go off to the United States to MLS. No, they wanted to raise, raise, and Raise they did. Beckham, five years, $250 million with the Galaxy and an option for $25 million to buy. Now, why is that significant? When an expansion team happens in professional sports, if you and me you know, wanted to go buy the expansion team, we would probably have to put up nine figures, over $100 million, maybe $200 million to buy our seat at the table as an expansion team. Where does that money go? Well, some goes to the league, but the rest gets distributed to the rest of owners as a profit share because they have helped build the league to be something that you and I now want to spend $200 million for an expansion team. Well, he's being given a huge discount. So the Galaxy are paying him five million, five years, $250 million, but Major League Soccer says, and we'll help subsidize it. We'll say that in the future, if Beckham wants to bring people together for an expansion team, he only has to pay 25 million, not 100 million or more, whatever the price is at that time. Well, how'd that work out? We all know how it worked out. Beckham was a constant figure in United States news and media about sports and celebrity. Him and his wife, who is a popular musician, singer, and two-time champion, the Galaxy, 2011, 2012. So it worked out. Beckham raises the stature of the league. And then in 2014, he exercises the option. Now remember, at the time he signed the contract in 07, a young Messi was 20 years old and already being talked about as being the best player in the world. Well, now Beckham puts the option for the team. Enter Miami. It's pink. The pink follows the story. Let me shift this way and see what happened. So 2014, he exercises the option. I'm gonna pay the 25 million, we're gonna expand the team. Then he was joined by Marcelo Clare and Masayoshi-san from SoftBank Vision. Hey, if you know my case studies and I talk about venture capitalists and big funds around the world, you know the SoftBank Vision Fund and Masayoshi-san are players. Well, they were part of it as well. Well, what do you have to do once you have a team now? Now he's got permission to get a team. He's got to find a stadium. He starts working with you know, the, the politics and city council and the planning commissions in Miami. Needed to find a place for a stadium. Well, there was one plan that you may have recalled. It was messy, Port of Miami. That got voted down. As a matter of fact, that got voted down 11 to 1. We don't want to do it. So they wanted Inter-Miami. They wanted an MLS team, especially given the great diversity and interest in soccer, football, in South Florida. Well, that gets knocked down. Well, let's put it in Little Havana, near the uh, Miami Marlins Stadium. Nope, that gets knocked down or not feasible. Then we'll put it in a place called Overton. If you look on the maps, you'll see where Overton is Miami. Nope, that doesn't work. So all of this is going on because between the time of the option, they're trying to get what is going to be the first year it actually plays in 2020. And he's got big money partners with him. Well, 2017, they even found even more money with the Moss family. And there's two gentlemen from the Moss family, brothers, that came and co-invested. And so there's a, a, an older brother, which was all part of that. He became the managing, uh, I believe, the managing owner of the team. And then 
uh, co-ownership was uh, David Beckham and Jose, the younger brother. They would eventually buy out Marcelo Clara, Masayoshi-san, and keep looking for the arena, a place to put the stadium, arena, I'm thinking basketball. So here we go. The 2020, the first year, seven wins, 13 losses, three ties, 10th in the conference, 19th overall. Not bad for an expansion team. Not great, but not bad. 2021, uh, the brothers, the Moss brothers, and RS Capital, a very large uh, financial company, brings in $150 million, and they buy out Marcelo Carr, Masayoshi-san, so the owners are now Beckham and the Moss brothers in RS Capital. Important thing, 2021, they're 12 wins, 17 losses, 5 draws, 11th in the conference, 20th in the league. Not great, but it's only their second year of existence. But now there's a whole different st- you know, style of conversation that is around inner Miami. They're talking about bigger plans for a stadium and Freedom Park would be the summation of those plans, which was a golf course that was right next to Miami International Airport that wasn't doing particularly well and also needed some cleanup. So this piece of property needed a lot of love. And to put a stadium there and to take time to do environmental cleanup and add other services like parks, practice fields and things so the public has more than just a stadium to go see inner Miami several times a year, that became it. it. The plans are fantastic. You can see here what we're talking about. The individual images you're seeing right now is Freedom Park, what it's going to look like. Then Beckham supposedly has been talking to Messi on and off for two years, dating back to 2021. And then July of this year, Messi is given an opportunity to come to Miami. But how did they win him over? How did they get him to do that? It's the same thing that they did that you would do if you have a small company and you need to get a technical partner. I want to hire a CTO. I want to hire a great sales leader. How do you do that? Well, you might give a little piece of uh, equity in the company called stock options. Now they have to vest or earn them over a period of years, but nonetheless, you can afford to give them a salary. Maybe if it's a sales guy, you have an annual bonus and commissions, but then how do you get a real big player to come to you if you're small? And as you can see, this was the early years for Inter-Miami, you do it with ownership. And they have given Messi ownership in the team. And I'm going to tell you what the senior owner said in just a minute, but let's reflect back. Does Beckham know a little something about the extra something to be in a contract? You bet, because he went to play for the Galaxy when he could have played anywhere in the world, and he was given a $25 million option so that he could buy the expansion team. Well, now Messi is being given equity so he could profit in the growth of the team that is inner Miami. And check this out. George Moss, who is the older of the two brothers, he basically had an interview with CNBC and he said, look, last year we had about $56 million in total revenue, but we believe with Messi, with tickets and and merchandise sales and everything else, that's going to double to $110 million this year. And right now we're like the 10th or 11th most valuable team in soccer. You see the uh, stats that come out once a year saying Dallas Cowboys, one of the most valuable sports franchises in the world. Yankees, one of the most valuable sports franchises. Well, check this out. Major League Soccer has also entered the conversation. The most valuable Major League Soccer team is actually the Los Angeles Football Club, LAFC. They just won the MLS championship, and they are projected having a value right now of about a billion dollars. George Mass says, you give us a year with what Messi's going to bring to MLS and to Inter-Miami, I believe we will be worth a billion and a half dollars, putting them 
as the most valuable MLS team. So you can see it leads to value. They believe Messi is going to lead tr to tremendous value of the team. And last night, we just saw it, their first game, uh, it was a regional tournament that was put on, Messi scores in the 94th minute in extra time, hitting a free kick over the wall of players into the top corner of the goal, and the sold-out crowd at their temporary stadium while Freedom Park is being built goes nuts. MLS goes nuts. So on the first game, the realization of the star power and everything he wants to be is here. And there's where it goes for you and me. Do you see how the puzzle can unfold over many years? That's the case study. In your industry, what you're doing, the puzzle can unfold for you. And a key player that you bring in, giving a little equity into the company, can be something that helps drive the value. That's what's happening here. So the, what's happening here on a much smaller basis can happen to entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and leaders all around the world, whatever you're doing. As I like to say, whether you're running a t-shirt company in Berlin or you're running a technology company in Silicon Valley, this is what happened to you. And this is a story of Inner Miami that really started back in 2007 and it ends today, chapter one, with Messi joining the team and in 2025, his third year of the team, they will be kicking off at a brand new stadium that I predict people are gonna be saying, the house that Messi built. That's the case study for this week, and that's the lesson for you and me. We can find the Messies for our company, not on the scale and in the headlines, but the people need to bring on, and we can use a little bit of equity to sweeten the pot to ensure they do. Let's get back to the studio. Businesses today are facing a rough world. The stock market is angry. Federal legislation is sending taxes down, threatening to wipe out value. It's just a very, very tough time. As an investor, where do you turn and what do you do? I think precious metals is a great alternative. Businesses today are facing a rough world. The stock market is in an angry mood, as is the economy. Banks are failing. Inflation is never ending. And a looming recession threatens to wipe out stock value. That's bad for business, but even worse for retirement funds, especially if you're the one getting ready to retire. And to make things worse, the government is targeting those retirement funds, you know, your 401ks and your IRAs, with heavy new taxes to pay for things like social justice agendas and federal deficits. The good news is that there is a way to help protect your financial future investing in precious metals. American Hartford Gold will ship physical gold and silver directly to your door or they can set you up with a gold IRA where you can invest in gold that shows up in your IRA. The gold IRA can shield your wealth from this economic meltdown, and the best part is this method is tax and penalty free. That's right. Analysts predict that gold is set to hit all-time highs. If you have retirement funds that you cannot afford to lose, now is the time to call a precious metal dealer. And here is the only precious metal dealer that I, the BizDoc, currently trust, American Hartford Gold. They'll show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio from stocks, mutual funds, and other things with physical gold and silver. With the finest products, fantastic customer service, and a buyback commitment, American Heart for Gold has earned a five-star rating from thousands of reviews and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. Tell them the BizDoc sent you and they'll give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your first order. Click the link in the description below or call 
535-0767. Again, on your screen, 866-535-0767, or just text BIZ, B-I-Z, to 65532. Well, interesting story about Inter-Miami. I hope that was helpful for you. Uh, I'm Tom Elser with the BizDoc, and I hope I left you better than we found you this week with everything that we brought this week's podcast. But there's something more that we'd like to offer you, and that is an opportunity to improve your business by getting shoulder to shoulder with a lot of entrepreneurs just like you and hearing from Patrick Bet David and a lot of the staff from Valuetainment as well as these incredible speakers at the Vault Conference. It's August 30th to September 2nd, right down here in Fort Lauderdale. It's actually Hollywood, Florida, which is right by Fort Lauderdale Airport on the coast here. And here's the folks that are going to be there. First, you got Patrick Bad David, the founder of Valuetainment, founder of PHP Agency, author, entrepreneur, everything that he's done. And then also we have, there's Tom Brady, going to be talking about leadership and building championships with different mixes of people. The same thing that you have to do is we go through the different people that'll be at our companies. We have to keep rebuilding our success. Also be there, Mike Tyson talking about never get in the ring without a battle plan, which is great. And he's a fun interview to listen to. And then Will Gadara, who took a restaurant in New York all the way to the number one rated Michelin restaurant in the world and he will be talking about building the team setting the north star and everything he's there and sit with a great interview with patrick the vault go check it out www.valuetainment.com and go to the storefront and find that and then we also have kellyanne we have a uh, what is the url just for the vault conference uh www.thevaultconference.com fantastic we look forward to seeing you there and we'll see you next week on the bizdoc podcast and until then i'm tom ells with the bizdoc and i hope i left you Better than I found you.